The story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is one of the best-known uh, stories in the Bible. If you went to Sunday school as a child, you were probably introduced to this story at a very young age. Uh, you've no doubt heard it multiple times. Uh, it's a real favorite. But it's often just seen as a cute Bible story that's easy to illustrate for children. Uh, I would argue that this is uh, one of the most important stories in the Bible, certainly in Luke's Gospel, and it only appears in Luke's Gospel. So why is this story about Zacchaeus so important? Well, because it reveals who Jesus is in relation to us. If we skip to the end of the passage, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is our seeker and our saviour. We are sinful by nature. Our default setting is to run away from God and get ourselves lost. The whole of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is all about God seeking and saving sinful human beings. When Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately recognized their sin, and they attempted to hide from God. And what did God do? He went in search of them. He went looking for them. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? God went looking for Adam, and the overarching theme of the Bible from that point is is God seeking and saving the lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives us three examples of God seeking out the lost. Uh, The parable of the lost sheep. Uh, If you've got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off and gets lost, what do you do? You leave the 99 and you go in search of that one lost sheep, and you rejoice when you find it. Uh, This picks up on Ezekiel 34, verse 16, when God himself claims to be a shepherd. It says, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. God is like a shepherd, and Jesus is the good shepherd that goes in search of that one lost sheep. Then uh, we have the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one. What does she do? She lights a lamp and she searches the whole house until she finds that one lost coin. And again, she rejoices when she finds it. Jesus said, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When you gave your life to Jesus, there was a celebration in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful to think of that? And then finally, there's the uh, parable of the lost son. Actually, it might as well be called the parable of the running father. Because when the son who had run away and squandered all his inheritance on wild living, when he's on his way back home, he's still a long way off. The father sees him, runs out to meet him, and gives him this enormous embrace and then holds a party to celebrate the return of his beloved son. Together, these three parables reveal a God who searches for individuals, 
people like you and me, and then rejoices when they are found. Nothing gives God more pleasure than to seek and save the lost. We think we've chosen God, but God chose us first. If God didn't seek us, we would have remained lost in our sin forever. As it says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So the overarching theme of this story about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. But this story also brings together three key themes from Luke's gospel, which is another reason I think it's so important. And those themes are, firstly, Jesus identifies with sinners. Secondly, faith in Jesus leads to new life. And thirdly, it speaks to us about how we should view our wealth. So firstly, Jesus identifies with sinners. So in chapter nine, uh, so chapter 19 begins with Jesus entering Jericho. Jesus is nearing the end of his journey to Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, the, the, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was about 25 kilometers. So you could literally walk it in a day. Jesus is very close to his objective. And it's no coincidence that just before Jesus enters Jerusalem, his mission is brought into sharp focus to seek and save the lost. And we know that's why he went to Jerusalem, and we know how this comes about. We're going to be looking at that during Holy Week and Easter. So we're introduced to a chief tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And as we saw the other week, uh, tax collectors were considered to be the lowest of the low. They were Roman collaborators and extortionists. They were basically collecting tax for Rome, kind of like uh, a franchise. Uh, There was a, a certain amount of revenue that they had to generate, but there was no upper limit, which, of course, is a formula for corruption. Um, We know that there were some set taxes, but in general, there were so many ways to tax people that no one really knew what they were supposed to be paying. And every time money changed hands, someone was making a profit. Tax collectors were wealthy. Uh, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which means he was probably responsible for a broader region. It was another tier of bureaucracy which presented further opportunities for corruption. Uh, The people of Jericho had no doubt seen Zacchaeus' lifestyle become more and more extravagant, and they knew that it was their money that was paying for this extravagant lifestyle. But there's nothing that anyone could have done because tax collectors were protected by the might of Rome. In short, Zacchaeus was a corrupt, greedy, sinful man who was despised by everyone. I wonder how many people of Jericho, I wonder how the people of Jericho would feel if they knew that 2,000 years later, the only person from that city who would be known by name to millions of people would be Zacchaeus. They'd be horrified, wouldn't they? So Jesus arrives in Jericho and Zacchaeus decides that he wants to see Jesus. He would have heard the rumors. Jesus had been called a devil, a fanatic, a blasphemer, a heretic, a rabbi, a prophet, maybe even a prophet who had come back to life. He'd been called an imposter. And some were saying, some were saying 
that he was and is the son of God. Add to that a huge crowd and a massive amount of excitement. Of course, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. And who's going to make room? Who's going to make way for someone like Zacchaeus? It would be a good opportunity to have a dig at him, wouldn't it, in a crowd like that? So being a resourceful guy, he climbed a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus. Uh, Tiss and I once went on a tour of the Holy Land, and uh, we went to Jericho, and the tour guide pointed out the very trees that Zacchaeus climbed. Now, I'm pretty skeptical, I'm not sure that was the very tree that he climbed, but we know that some trees do live for thousands of years, so who knows, maybe it's still there. And there's probably something to see, say here about Zacchaeus overcoming an obstacle to get close to Jesus. Uh, but we'll have to save that for another day. Anyway, Jesus looks up and totally out of the blue, he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Imagine how shocked Zacchaeus must have been to be singled out in that huge crowd. I mean, there were all kinds of people there. There were pious, religious people. Why didn't Jesus address one of them? And notice how Jesus called him by name, Zacchaeus. When Jesus calls a person, it's personal. God is very specific. Throughout the Bible, we see that God calls people by name. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, David, all of the prophets. God calls them by name. In the New Testament, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Jesus calls them by name. And what about Nathaniel? Let me read you John 1, 47 to 48. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, this is a, a good guy. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathaniel goes to see Jesus and Jesus says, I already know you. You're one of mine. And now Jesus is saying the same kind of thing to Zacchaeus, just in a different way. You're one of mine. And if you know and love Jesus, it is because he has called you by name and made you his own. The sovereign creator of the universe came after you personally. So Jesus decided to stay at Zacchaeus' house, which is the last thing anyone would have expected. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, uh, just going into Zacchaeus' house would have defiled Jesus, made him unclean, let alone eating there or staying the night there. Jesus cared nothing for public opinion. He cared nothing for public opinion. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus knocked on the door of Zacchaeus' life, and Zacchaeus opened the door, and Jesus went in and literally ate with him and became his friend. Time and time again, we see that Jesus identifies with sinners. He hangs out with people who no one else would have had anything to do with. He befriends the worst offenders. And we've already seen in this series that Jesus faced a lot of criticism for that. And, and the same, same happens here, verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
what they fail to realize is that they're all sinful. No one deserves to have Jesus come to their home. Uh, This kind of acceptance by Jesus is incredibly powerful. Everyone sins. Everyone sins. The only difference is that some people's worst sins are secret and hidden, whilst for others, they're more obvious. So a respectable middle-class person can conceal their pride, hard-heartedness, jealousy, bitterness, and resentment to a certain extent. But a, a, a prostitute who's addicted to methamphetamine cannot hide who she is or what she's become. And for those whose sins are more obvious, they may never have known love and acceptance. Uh, Where we were uh, before in Tottenham, it's uh, quite a gritty um, inner city area in London. And a lot of young people get into gangs. And a lot of the time it's because uh, they're abused or neglected at home. And the gangs become like a surrogate family to them. Uh, A lot of people in our prisons will come from that kind of background. Not all, but a, a lot will. The gospel is very powerful in prison. If you're in prison, it's probably easier to accept that something has gone badly wrong with your life. It's probably easier to accept that you're sinful. If you feel like you've been rejected by everyone, rejected by society, how must it feel to learn that Jesus loves you, uh, that he'll accept you as you are, that he'll forgive you, and that he'll help you to change? What an amazing revelation that is for those who are aware of their sin. The same kind of thing happened to Zacchaeus. He's not in prison, uh, but he's acutely aware of his sin. He's a tax collector. He knows what he's doing is wrong. And he's despised and rejected by the people around him. Zacchaeus doesn't feel loved or accepted by anyone until he's found by Jesus. So that's the first thing. Jesus identifies with sinners. He loves them. He accepts them. Jesus doesn't condone sin, but he reaches out to sinners in love. The next uh, theme that uh, is brought in is that faith in Jesus leads to new life. Uh, Jesus knocks on the door of Zacchaeus's life and Zacchaeus welcomes him in uh, metaphorically and literally. And it is life-changing. It is life-changing. Zacchaeus has heard all the rumors about who Jesus might be, but he believes by faith that Jesus is Lord. There's a time and a place for philosophy and theology and for weighing all the arguments, and I would encourage every Christian to keep asking questions because thought is not the enemy of Christianity. But there comes a point where you've got to open that door as an act of faith, to open your heart, to open your home, to open your life to Jesus. A point where you say, I'm in. From now on, I'm following Jesus. Some would say, oh, that's just blind faith. You'd have to be really gullible and naive to do that. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Look at the impact it had on Zacchaeus. It caused him to repent of his own ways. His life was going in one direction and uh, he turned it around. And we'll look at his exact response in a minute. Uh, One thing that's striking 
is that he made a public declaration of faith. That's an important and powerful thing to do. Telling people where we stand helps us to hold the line. Uh, We can't hide our faith and live it out at the same time. If people don't know that we're a Christian, as soon as we face a bit of pressure or opposition, we'll buckle, we'll compromise, we'll backslide. We have to let people know where we stand and who we follow. A friend of mine, Mark, he spent 16 years in the British SAS. He he left as a sergeant major and he became a Christian uh, during that time. Uh, And he describes the moment when he first made a public declaration of faith. He was in the galley, the the mess hall, that's where everyone eats. And for those who are not familiar with these places, if you imagine 200 blokes, low murmur of conversation, clinking of plates and cutlery, uh, it's, you know, quite, quite noisy. Uh, Mark sat down to eat and he suddenly felt convicted that he had to say grace, that he had to thank God for his food. So he put down his knife and fork and he shut his eyes and bowed his head. And in the silence of his, his heart and his mind, he, he prayed. And one of his mates immediately went, what are you doing? And at that moment, the whole mess hall went completely silent. You could have heard a pin drop. And Mark said, I just felt that I needed to pray and give thanks for my food. And the silence went on for a split second longer. And then the whole mess hall erupted as Mark received a torrent of banter and abuse. But that was it. From that moment on, everyone knew that Mark was a Christian and it became much easier for him to stand firm, to hold the line. Mark's mates expected him to be different, and he was. It's often the case that deep down we know the way we're living is wrong, wrong, but we continue because we lack the power to change. Jesus gives us the power to change, but we've got to follow him wholeheartedly. And that's what we see with Zacchaeus. He jumps in with both feet from the get-go. And it is immediately obvious that his life is completely changed. So people can be cynical and say, ah, it's just blind faith. But look at the results. I bet we all know people whose lives have been radically changed as a result of following Jesus. In fact, I can look around this room and I know there are plenty of people here whose lives have done a complete U-turn at the point where they decided to follow Christ. In fact, let's do a show of hands. Put your hand up if you know at least one person, including yourself, whose life has been radically changed by Jesus. That's a lot of hands. The world tells us that following Jesus is delusional. It's a waste of time. It's outmoded. It's unscientific. But there's enough evidence in this room alone to make the careful inquirer think twice. Jesus went to Zacchaeus' home, and he wasn't made unclean or defiled or contaminated. It was the opposite. Jesus cleansed the whole house. Jesus cleansed Zacchaeus' life. Verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. In other words, he's a true child of God. Anybody who truly puts their faith in Christ will be changed. And the more wayward the life, the more obvious the change. 
And for those people whose sins are secret and hidden, the change may be less obvious to others, but it will be no less powerful and profound. So the final um, element that Luke brings in is to do with how we view our wealth. We know that Zacchaeus changed, but how did he change? What's the most obvious thing? Well, he repented of being such a crook and for accumulating his wealth through dishonesty. He said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. That's incredibly generous. Uh, Such a dramatic change of heart. It reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. If you've ever read the book or seen the film, you'll know that Scrooge experiences tremendous joy when he learns to be generous. It's incredibly liberating. In Luke's gospel, one's attitude to money and material possessions is a litmus test of true faith. Zacchaeus put his faith in Jesus. He immediately gives away half his possessions to the poor. But in Luke chapter 18, we have the rich ruler. This was just in the preceding chapter. The rich ruler, do you remember him? Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give the money to the poor, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to part with his wealth and his riches, and he went away sad. Compare that sadness to Zacchaeus' joy. It's a bit annoying, isn't it? It's a bit annoying that our attitude to money and material possessions as a litmus test of our faith. We wish it wasn't the case, but that's probably because most of us are far too attached to our money and our stuff. Zacchaeus pledged half of all his possessions to the poor, and then he said, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. In other words, he wants to make restitution. He wants to put right the wrong things he has done. In the Old Testament, the normal restitution for a wrong would be to cover the costs plus 20%. So if your bull did some damage to a neighbor's property, you'd cover the cost plus 20%. But in the case of out-and-out theft, the penalty was four or five times the value of that which was stolen. So Zacchaeus was not making excuses for himself. He put his dodgy dealings in the category of theft and he wants to make restitution. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. But if we can make restitution, we should. If you have stolen from someone and you give your life to Jesus, return whatever it is that you stole. If you have cut off a family member, stonewalled them through pride, jealousy, or spite, and you come to Christ, try to be reconciled with that person. If you've ever treated anyone really badly and you give your life to Jesus, write to that person. Tell them you're sorry, if that's possible. Restitution isn't always possible. And as I said, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins in full. But if we can make amends, we should. So the most important thing from this narrative, the overarching theme, is that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. He seeks us personally and specifically, and he rejoices when we are found. And he saves us in every conceivable way. He saves us from pride, selfishness, small-mindedness, greed, stinginess. He saves us from destructive patterns of behavior, and he calls us to a new life, a life that is 
infinitely more fulfilling. And if we combine uh, this passage with what we were looking at last week, we see that Jesus saves us from sin, death, and hell. I think this is one of the most important passages from the Bible because it reveals so succinctly what Jesus came to do. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And it paints a very clear picture of what can happen when a person is saved, when they're found by Jesus. Just look at the change in Zacchaeus. We can be in no doubt that Jesus changes lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this narrative that so clearly illustrates who you are, what you came to do, how you view us, how much you love us, the fact that you seek us, and your aim is to save us. And we pray that we can put our complete trust in you, follow you wholeheartedly, and live the the fullness of life that you offer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.